0: Welcome to The Sages Among Us, everyone. The Sages Among Us focuses on people who have been civically engaged and actively participating in the development of their community. I'm your host for this evening, Brian Buckley, and tonight is a special so since our guest has been civically engaged for a very long time, not just on a local or national level, but in an international capacity and at the top echelon of policy and government. With a career in the Foreign Service and Diplomatic Corps, Jenta Holmes has had a front-row seat to some of the major events of the past half-century. She was the deputy chief of mission in South Africa during the time of transition, as Nelson Mandela was getting released from his decades-long imprisonment. From 1990 to 1992, she was the first American ambassador to the African nation of Namibia. And from 1997 to 2000, she was appointed the U.S. ambassador to Australia. At other times in her career, she was the Director General of the Foreign Service and the Director of Personnel at the State Department. I could spend the entire show going over her resume, but suffice it to say, she has had interesting postings around the world at different embassies, and she's often been one of the first women to ever have been selected for a given assignment. Genta, welcome to the Sages Among Us.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, so am I happy that you're here. So, In your introduction, I didn't really talk much about your childhood or growing up years. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I can, because it's pertinent uh, to—that was my bad toe, Brian. (laughs) It's pertinent to my career. I grew up in Huntington Park, California, which is in Southern California, and uh, I was very active in my church all through high school and through college. And being active in the church, I went on a church work team to Panama— Missed my high school graduation because the ship left, it was a Japanese immigrant ship. Went through the Panama Canal, spent the summer in Panama and coming back through the Caribbean. And the reason that's important is that I realized I loved being in a foreign country, but I love being there with a purpose. And so I knew that the Foreign Service at International Relations was going to be my direction in life. And I changed my college major to international relations uh, from history. Other things that influenced me, I was on the national board of the Methodist Church, and there was a merger of three boards. And all of the heads of the old boards were lobbying me because they wanted my vote to be head of the new board. And I thought, well if I'm going to do politics, I'm going to do politics and not do it under the guise of the church. So it was very formative. I also learned to speak well and give, be comfortable giving public speeches. So it was really important, very formative for me.
0: So was was there any uh, family background that uh, besides, you know, you had your, your trip that, that sort of was the kickoff for, for right. your career? but. Uh, Did your parents have any kind of public service or? uh, No.
1: Well, my mother was a teacher, but my mother had a very inquisitive mind. She had a very liberal outlook on race and different things that wasn't usual for women, especially perhaps in the early 50s. And funny enough, both of my parents grew up in Oklahoma, and every summer we would drive back. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the wonderlust right there. was I loved going there and finding out that the color of their soil was different. They have red dirt in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You know, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And I think the seeds were planted.
0: Curiosity about yes, other absolutely.
1: places.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, other than the parts of your life story that we've already discussed, can you think of a watershed event uh, or moment that's been key in... The life you've led since then?
1: Uh, there have been a lot. One important moment, because it gave me a very valuable lesson. I was working in the Economic Bureau, and we had a deputy assistant secretary who was a brilliant economist. And he was sitting there correcting the, an outgoing telegram by my immediate boss whom none of us liked very much. And he was crossing out things, and he was saying, you don't weigh your argument. Either it stands on its own or it doesn't. And that stayed with me my whole life. It is such an important lesson, and one of the reasons that today's political discourse is so troubling to me. Mm -hmm. Because people make up stuff, they throw in everything but the kitchen sink. Once anybody does that with me, I know their argument is weak.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting point. Interesting point. Um, You know, along the way, have there been any individuals, uh, mentors, uh, people who have really contributed or helped you along the way, people that you might want to thank on air now?
1: Oh, well, there was Sid Weintraub, the person I was just talking about, but he's passed. But there was, when I went to the Bahamas, my deputy chief of mission was a woman. Her name was Roseanne, still is, Roseanne Ridgeway. And she was, she was so highly regarded that just having her approval made a huge difference in my life. My whole career trajectory changed once I worked for and became friends with uh, Roseanne Ridgway. Mm-hmm.
0: So obviously she was a person of, of influence with others that might have helped you with career. career. What, what was her influence on you? What do you think you learned from her?
1: Well, watching her, I admi- she could do things that I still can't do. She could, for example, dictate a memo off the top of her head. She was letter perfect. She, was, she cared about the way she looked, the way she presented herself. She had a sense of humor. Uh, she was interested in men the same way I was. We were both in our 30s, so what was not to like? Um, as an example, there hadn't been many uh, examples like that for me in the Foreign mm-hmm. Service.
0: Great. So uh, somebody you just want to emulate in so many ways. Yes, absolutely. Is. Well, let's get into some of the interesting stories you've collected along the way. What what do you consider a high point or pinnacle in your career?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm sorry. There have been so many. Uh, certainly a highlight was being sent by the State Department with our Assistant Secretary for African Affairs to interview somebody in South Africa who was talking about he was running for president and saying he wanted to end apartheid and wanted to release Nelson Mandela, and they wanted to know if he was for real or not. So we went to, flew to Durban on a small plane the day after the 4th of July and interviewed F.W. de Klerk, and both of us agreed he meant it to the bone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he realized that the only way to save the country he loved was to go against what his people had always stood for, and that to be saved they had to change, mm-hmm. and that he meant it and that it would happen, and it did.
0: So you got to relay that message to our government here?
1: I did. All right. I did. It was very exciting. And then to be there the day that Nelson was released from prison, uh, it, well, it was thrilling. Mm-hmm. It was thrilling.
0: You got to see both the uh, preamble and the conclusion of that. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's a flip side to the previous question. What would be perhaps a, a low point or a disappointment you've experienced along the way?
1: I would probably say the biggest disappointment is poor Haiti, is that it never gets better. It just seems to get worse. My two years spent in Haiti Haiti were some of the most exciting, interesting, challenging time of my life. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of violence, a lot of gunfire, three coups while I was there. Um, Any
0: any directed at the the embassy, your place of work?
1: uh, Yes, we had demonstrations, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it was... um, my husband was driving to the embassy one day. It was his birthday, and he was kind of late getting there, and he came in all breathless, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, there were, I was driving by the cemetery, and there were thousands and thousands of people, and I couldn't go forward, and I couldn't go backward, and I, I just didn't know what was going on. If I'd, if I'd gone forward, I would have run over bodies. And on the radio, we heard that this huge crowd of people had followed a talking cow all the way from Carrefour. And that's what it was about. I mean, only in Haiti, you know. <laughs> but it, um, through all of this deprivation that they have, they are so poor. They have the most wonderful art and the colorful, and uh, they're an extraordinary people, and my heart just bleeds for them that somehow it can't get onto the right track.
0: Do you have any theories as to why, if, you know, such a distinguished group of people people of human beings there, what, what is causing this, this economic, you know, well, uh, violence? Well, first of
1: or- all, they had to pay reparations for hundreds of years almost to the French because they fought a revolution and won. And the French said, well, you have to pay us because you're no longer working for us. And they did. So that was the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And then they were so poor, they cut down all of their trees for firewood, for charcoal, and that caused the silt to go into the sea and kill. It's just a terrible cycle, a okay. terrible cycle.
0: Uh, a cautionary lesson.
1: Yes. Perhaps. You
0: know, you were clearly a, a pioneer, a female working in what had been uh, traditionally a male-dominated profession. <laughs> Did you find that easier or more difficult than you expected it to be?
1: Actually, I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I'd never met that kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, I'd always just done what I wanted to do and been very successful at it. And I was a little shocked, you know, to see it. But I always thought it was their problem, not mine. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of didn't pay any attention. It was never a problem with the government of the country I was in.
0: That was going to be a follow-up question. It was was more in-house. Oh,
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, the, the, the... Another country had no issue no. with a, a woman no, ambassador because I was or, or representing the
1: United States government.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. You're listening to the Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Brian Buckley, and we're talking today with Jenta Holmes, who retired from a very active diplomatic career, having served at different times as U.S. ambassador to both Australia and Namibia as Deputy Chief of Mission in both South Africa and Haiti, and as both Director General of the Foreign Service and Chief of Personnel at the State Department. As always, you're invited to join in the conversation. If you have a question or comment for Genta Holmes, please give us a call at KVMR. That's 530-265-9555. We'll take a short break and be back with more in just a few seconds. Welcome back to The Sages Among Us. My guest this evening is retired diplomat and former U.S. Ambassador, Genta Holmes. Genta, you've had many different assignments as a person interested in international relations, most of which we still haven't even mentioned. For example, in 1977, you were the first woman to work for Congress as an American Political Science Association Fellow. As you look back at the various peaks and valleys of your career in the specialized branch of public service, is there any sort of unifying approach or philosophy or a mission or a mantra Mm -hmm. that has been a consistent factor in the wide variety of settings in which you've worked?
1: Yes. As I would tell junior foreign service officers coming in, or as I would tell graduating students, there are three things you should remember. One, we've already talked about, don't weigh your argument. Either it stands on its own or it does not. Two, don't believe your press clippings. Mm-hmm. It will get you into trouble every time and give you a big head. And you you need to understand who you really are, not what the press says about you. And three, keep a sense of humor about yourself.
0: Good advice in general, isn't that? It is. Yes. Not that everybody has press clippings to deal with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you do in one way or the other, mm-hmm. whether it's press or, you know.
0: Right, right. Well, I think you probably had more than your share along the way, but uh, did. clearly you, you handled it well. Um, you also served as a professor and diplomat in residence at UC Davis. So and you actually touched on this a little bit uh, with the last question, but what advice or uh, suggestions would you have for, you know, education or experience for somebody who would be interested in going into international relations or foreign service?
1: Well, it's interesting. Several of my students did go into the foreign service, so I'm very happy about that. But now there are so many other things you can do other than the foreign service to give you a life overseas. When I was, you know, doing it, there weren't that many options. The Peace Corps hadn't even been invented yet. So... For the foreign service, you don't really need a background in international affairs. You can—we had engineers in my class. All kinds of backgrounds come in. You need an active interest in the world around you. You need an interest in promoting your your country to other people, being able to explain it to them. Um, that's the most important thing. The, the, it's very hard testing to get into Foreign Service. There's a written, which is really just a screening process to cut down to the number that you can interview orally. I think over 11,000 take the written, and maybe 100 officers are taken a year. So you mm. can see that it's very competitive. But it's your interest and your desire and your intellect that counts the most, I think.
0: Uh Does one need to speak a foreign language? No, we'll teach you. Okay. Uh, Did you know a foreign language before you began? I
1: had very bad French. My (laughs) French is much, much better now.
0: Okay, okay. Um, So you've worked on multiple continents in multiple hemispheres, actually. Uh, what, What brought you to Nevada County?
1: Well... I knew that I wanted to live in Northern California. My husband and I are both Californians, but Southern California wasn't really an option. So when I was Director General of the Foreign Service, I appointed myself to UC Davis as a diplomat in residence. And we used it as a home base to find a place to live. And we had made a list of what we wanted to do when we retired. And this met all of our recommendations, all of our requirements. We were thrilled to find it. We're thrilled to be here We have friends from Africa come and sit on our deck and say, oh, it reminds me of home. We have friends from Australia who come and sit on our deck and say, oh, it reminds me of home. So it had a lot of things going for it. And we're thrilled to be here. I've never lived anywhere as long, Mm -hmm. anywhere my entire life.
0: How long has it been now?
1: Uh, 22 years.
0: Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, So... Given that worldwide experience you have, what and your time here in Nevada County, what do you think is unique about this place? Or conversely, what does it have in common with communities across the globe?
1: I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, community, you have a core, every community has a core. That creates who it is. And Grass Valley and Nevada City and Penn Valley, where I'm where I live, have very distinct cores and distinct interests. And for small communities, they have incredible range of interests. A friend of mine from Australia came, and he couldn't believe, for example, Citronet was still here then. He couldn't believe the wine list at Citronet. He said in Australia, not even some of the finest restaurants would have this variety of wines. And it's that kind of thing that appeals to someone like me, who's lived all over the world, or would appeal to someone who hasn't lived all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's very um, eclectic in what it has to offer.
0: So, you know, just listening to what you're saying, would you say that that it's a small community, but it had sort of uh, r- resources or cultural assets that w- are very unique to a small community?
1: They are unique to a small community and a, and a broad outlook. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of your uh, missionaries who are working in Africa that come back here all the time, and everybody's aware of them and what they're doing, Uh it's a, very, it's a very special place here, I think Okay So
0: You've been privileged to look at Life on Earth through a, a wider lens mm-hmm. Than many people ever Ever get to mm-hmm. um, What trends Do you see Could be local or, or Worldwide That either worry you Or give you hope Maybe let's do one of each
1: Ah. Uh, I hope I can find one that gives me hope. <laughs> I'm very, very troubled by the direction and the tenor of politics, not only in our country but in other countries as well. I somehow feel like we're reliving the 1920s with the start of fascism and the, the inability to communicate with other people, to listen to other people. Um, it's very troubling to me. I sometimes feel like everything I worked for my whole career is crumbling, and it's very disheartening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We we took things for granted about our country, about our democracy. Uh, we talked about it overseas, and I feel like we're losing sight of what that is. And I find it deeply, deeply troubling. Mm-hmm.
0: And are you seeing this same phenomenon uh, on a worldwide yes, scale? Yes, Or not just this it's country? Not just this country. Mm-hmm. It's not just
1: this country. It's not just this country, which makes it even more troubling. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, uh, and would make it harder for any one country, including ours, to avoid you know, yeah. proceeding in, in that same direction. Um, on a, on a lighter note, I, I understand that you were a, uh, a guest, possibly even a frequent guest, on the Australian version of Saturday Night Live. Yes. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, it was called Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. And it was the most watched television show in Australia. And I met the host, and he invited me on the show, and I said, Sure. And my deputy chief of mission was horrified. He thought it wasn't dignified enough for the American ambassador, but people loved it and so did I. And one segment of the show was like the old gong show where you had some horrible talents and then you'd you know, gong anyway, it was great fun and it was very successful and my deputy changed his mind.
0: How many times did you appear? No, on just
1: it? once was enough. Just the once. Okay. <laughs>
0: But, but they, 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 they saw America in a new way
1: yeah. over there. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah, I was, the, the Australians have a thing about cutting down tall poppies. So I was always very, very careful. Um, when I first arrived, I had huge press. I was color front page picture on every newspaper in the whole country. And after a while, I said, okay, that's enough. We're not going to do that anymore. So just cool it down because they turn on you if you're not careful.
0: So you cut your own poppy there. I,
1: no, I just left it to grow. <laughs> I didn't give them the opportunity to cut it.
0: Good, good. So one of the other things that you know, you, you've had a unique opportunity to, to see is you know, truly extraordinary people on, on the historical stage. Does any one personality stand out for you?
1: Well, Nelson Mandela, certainly, Uh, Sergeant Shriver. Mm -hmm. He was ambassador to France, and I was uh, their assistant with he and his wife, Eunice. And uh, it was she that told me her brother had been shot. We were planning uh, their first 4th of July in France. We hadn't been there long And there was a strike on, a general strike on in France. This is right after May 68, if anybody's old enough to remember what that was. Mm. And she looked up and said, "Uh, it's a crazy country. And I thought she meant France. And she said, did you know they shot my brother? And I was dumbfounded. I mean, I was absolutely dumbfounded. And then Maria, our former first lady, was 13 at the time. And she said to me, why are they killing us? And I had no answer for her. But they were certainly extraordinary, (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, uh, charismatic and, you know, had that thing about them. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people, uh, James Jones, who was a writer who wrote From Here to Eternity, was a close friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And he had also an amazing charisma about him. Um, I met Charles de Gaulle, and he kissed my hand. And he also had that aura of, actually, I the next in the receiving line was Richard Nixon, and he didn't have it.
0: Okay,
1: he was quite tall, Nixon. It surprised me.
0: He was tall. Huh? Yeah, okay.
1: you know, because he always sort of hunched over, and you never mm. thought of him as tall. He was also very tan, and it was February in Paris, so it looked a little odd.
0: Okay, well, that's what San Clemente will do. For yeah, you. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have a a lot of time left, um, but we do have time for. For final thoughts, you know, uh, as you look back on uh, a career that took you all over the world, um, meeting lots of people and dealing with you know uh, basketful of issues, um, do you did you get any thoughts about uh, leadership and service uh, or the meaning behind you know all that you you were doing as part of the State Department and Foreign Service?
1: Well, there's a, I don't know whether to call it a prayer or a poem or a statement written by um, Reinhold Niebuhr. And I usually close every speech with it. I've used it in weddings. Uh, and it sort of sums up for me. Do you mind if I Not share all. it with you? Nothing worth doing is completed in our lifetime. Therefore, we must be saved by hope. Nothing true or beautiful or good makes complete sense in any immediate context of history. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. Nothing we do, however virtuous, can be accomplished alone. Therefore, we are saved by love.
0: Ah, beautiful thoughts, beautiful thoughts. So I guess let's let's conclude with uh with hope. Then we were talking, you know, uh what have you seen in your years on the job and off the job that gives you hope? Young people. In what way?
1: Uh they're fresh. Uh they aren't hardened in their outlook yet. Uh They're enthusiastic about the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want to make... We've always wanted to make the world a better place, but now it's truly critical Mm. (laughs) in terms of climate change. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to stand for this anymore. And they must get out and vote. I just read there's a whole group of young people who are indifferent about voting. No, no, no. They must get out and vote. Um, I know some people like to blame past generations for it but that's that's a useless exercise you know uh you have to do what you can do
0: Mm -hmm. uh uh, final thoughts you've met so many leaders what makes what makes a great leader empathy empathy
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: well jenta i want to thank you so much for taking time out of your still busy schedule to be with us tonight and it's uh been a, a just a fascinating show for me and i've really enjoyed hearing the the stories about your career
1: i've enjoyed it too
0: great thank you the purpose of this program is to inspire and invite people to participate in the betterment of their community Discover how others are making a difference and how you too can be part of the positive in this region by tuning in to The Sages Among Us on Wednesday evenings at 6.30. Next week, we'll feature host Kim Ewing interviewing well-known musician, sound technician, and arts advocate Greg Cameron. I'm Brian Buckley, and you've been listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. Thanks again to our guest, Jenta Holmes, for sharing her story tonight. I'd also like to give a shout out to Ralph Henson for his work as our engineer. And finally, thank you for joining us. And thanks so much for everything you do to make your part of the world a little bit better.